If I could have sex with a podcast, it would be American Timelines by History Lefogex, the greatest podcast ever. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. History, 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 Samantha, that's a hickey. Welcome to, to another, another episode. episode. All right, stop again. We gotta start again. Why? Because I wasn't Let's sing in it. there at the beginning. No. Let's sing it. No. One, two, sing. Just sing. You have a good voice. No. One. You sing. You will harmonize. Just do it normal. You sing hi. I'll sing already. One, two, three. Welcome, Welcome to, to another, another episode, episode of, of American Timelines. American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I'm Hyde W. Ballard of West Town, Pennsylvania. I invented the spark. And this is the podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things from the past, and we do it year by year. I died of cholera. Why do they all die of cholera? No, I don't know what he died of, but he, he did invent the spork, and I don't, can't find anything else about him. That's a genius. Did, was he a millionaire, I wonder? I'm Hyde Ballard. No, he died of, let's find out, Hyde W. Ballard, the inventor of the spork. Let's read his... Obituary. Do they usually say how you died in an obituary? Oh, I guess they don't. I don't think they do. I think they just say past or whatever. This is the eccentric heroic life of Samuel W. Francis, inventor of the spork. Uh oh. There's a. There's a. Who really invented the spork? One guy invented it. The other guy uh, got the try to get the patent for it so i guess there's a big battle all right i don't know that's who cares about okay the and tonight we anyway. are going to talk about 1964 and we are going to finish 1964 1964 motherfuckers and so motherfuckers we're in october we started october that's right and you told a story of a gross disgusting murder and rape and i did you got there was really no rape. you got really into the rape i remember there was no rape no there wasn't no well, Cece Winans was also born that day that you talked about okay. um, in October. So we're gonna we there was too much to finish October. So, but we got a lot to cover this episode. We got to jump right in. We don't have time for Amy's bullshit. Yeah, we not have to just jump. Not right what in. I normally do. Yeah, just go on and on about stupid things and All whatever right. else. What's the first thing? It's time to go. So we're gonna start with Monday, October twelfth, okay, nineteen sixty four. You okay with that? Yeah, did I you think know so. that October twelfth was a Monday. I did not of nineteen sixty four. I know more than one person that could tell you that if you yeah. just tell them the date. Um, it was the day that Robert Moog invented the electronic synthesizer. Oh. Robert Arthur Moog. It's spelled M-O-O-G. Moog. So you would think it's Moog, but it's pronounced Moog. All right. He died in 2005, unfortunately, but he was an American engineer and pioneer of electronic music. Uh, okay. He was the founder of Moog Music and the inventor of the first commercial synthesizer. I wonder why. I wonder how a, a synthesizer, synthesizer is different from an organ, because you know everybody had the organs in their house all the time. At the time, synthesizers were enormous. 
room filling instruments. Oh wow! Yeah, like a whole room fill, like a mainframe computer, I assume. Yeah. Because uh, you know, like the you see it at, at like theaters, they have the giant pipe organs. And oh stuff. right, like, yeah. Um, so they're giant, big things. But Moog helped to build a more compact synthesizer that that would appeal to musicians. Okay. It was composed of separate modules, which created in shapes. Anyway, he went to the same high school, mm-hmm. the Bronx High School of Science. Yeah. Same high school as Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, say. Friend of the show. That's right. Friend of the show, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I met him before. He rode my shoulders. Yep, he did. We hung out all okay. day. We high-fived a couple Quick times. Quick bragging, and let's go to the next thing. Also, wait, one other notable person that went to that same school. Oh. was the two of them. Roy J. Glauber, the physicist who made contributions to the quantum theory of optical coherence. I... Couldn't care less about that right now. You don't know what optical coherence is? I do not. Neither do I. Thursday, October 15th, 1964, the 1964 World Series pitted the National League champion St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, say. You're from there. Yep. Against the American League champion New York Yankees, with the Cardinals prevailing in the best of seven games. Oh, the Cardinals won, eh? Yeah. And this series is seen as a bellwether point in baseball history. Mm-hmm. According to Wikipedia, as it was the last hurrah for the 1950s Yankee dynasty of uh, Mantle, Maris, Ford, and Berra, mm-hmm. Yogi Berra, mm-hmm. among others, and it demonstrated that the National League's growing enthusiasm to sign black and Latino players mm-hmm. uh, was a permanent paradigm shift in fielding a championship team. And so the 64 Cardinals had a, a lot of those guys. Oh, they did. So it was kind of a different, it was a shifting paradigm here. Uh, the series also featured brother against brother matchup, Ken Boyer of the Cardinals and Cleet Boyer of the Yankees. Okay. Both of whom started at third base on their teams. Oh, that's interesting. Both managers, Yogi Berra and Johnny Keene. Yogi Berra was the Yankees manager. Johnny Keene was the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. They were both St. Louis natives. Oh, okay. Though neither had ever played for the hometown Cardinals. So how about that? How about that? Do you know those guys personally? No. no. Because, I mean, I was thinking same age group. No, I don't. Age group. And St. Louis. St. Louis. You can find me in St. Louis. Nellie is also from St. Louis. It was some years and years before I was born, my dear. Well, uh, I Yeah, know. it I, was. You prove how old you are. Let me see your birth certificate. I'm show you my gray pubes. <laughs> well, yeah, those are gray. <laughs> All right. I know from experience. All right. Dude, Moving on. You know what I mean. Saturday. October 17th, so 1964. Gross. What's gross? You. Gray pubes? You're so gross. How am I gross? You're the one who said you had gray pubes, <laughs> and I'm the one who's gross? You're the one who's talking about seeing them. <laughs> Nobody wants to know about that. Everybody wants to know about how often I see your gray <laughs> You're gross. We're cutting this whole conversation we're not, out. We're not cutting anything. Yes, I don't we are. cut things. Haven't you Obviously, noticed? yes, I have noticed. Yeah, so I ain't going to start now. Okay. We have a little song by okay. a group called Manfred Mann. You ever heard of them? I have heard of them. You know what song? No. Is it no- instrumental? No. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Just walking down the street singing. Do what did he, did he, dum, did he do? Written by Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich and originally recorded in 1963 by the American vocal group The Exciters. Hmm. It was made internationally famous by the British band Manfred Mann. That's a really bad band name. Manfred Mann? Yes. Stupid. 
I was not aware that Manfred Mann did this. Yeah, I wasn't either. You know, like I've I've heard this quite a bit, and I I don't think I knew that. I I only knew Manfred Mann as the one that sing that song that goes wrapped up like a douche and then a runner in a night that's not man for blinded man, is it? by the light that's I, man for man man for man does that but i don't think they originated i think that was bruce springsteen first but anyway the song was used as military cadence in the movie yes, stripes that's right the song was used as an opening and closing theme song of ang tv whatever that is mm-hmm. this was used in the movie my girl and the Man for Man version of the song was used as the extra music in the 1991 film L.A. Story. Okay. Steve Martin. She's my. She's my. Zaba daba diba do. Yep. And then on Sunday, October 25th, 1964, I'm going to just go this real quick because I don't want to talk about this much. Jim, Jim Wrongway Marshall. Was the defensive end of the Minnesota Vikings? Oh my God! Uh, and on October twenty fifth, nineteen sixty four, in a game against the 49ers, after picking up a fumble, he ran the ball sixty six yards the wrong way. Oh my God! He his, did to his own end zone. Oh my God! And it is called the most embarrassing episode yes. in NFL history. A half century later, did he kill himself after that happened? No, no. Because here is the thing about it: this is all he's known for, Jim Marshall. Yeah. But he should be known because he was an unbelievable player. Like he was yeah. great and awesome. He made one mistake one it time. It was really bad. A half century later, some know Marshall more for that blunder than for lasting twenty NFL seasons while playing in two hundred and eighty two straight games. They still won that game, and he had three interceptions in the game. Oh wow. Nobody remembers that. I mean he's a defensive end. They don't get a lot of interceptions. So But because he ran the because wrong way. Because he ran the wrong way, and the, everyone has seen this video a hundred million times. He just probably kept running and he yeah, thought they was, were yelling at him. Yeah, it was like a fumble. Going. Yeah, he did. He got ahead of everybody and and his teammates couldn't get there in time uh to to stop him or anything. Yeah. Um, a little more recently there was a, a player that did the same thing and oh, really and his own teammates this was I think college and its own teammates tackled him. Oh yeah. Uh, to so he wouldn't you know score, score for, for the yeah. so the other team did score when this guy did So that? it becomes a safety then. So if oh. you if you run if the ball goes in your own end zone it and goes out the back of it yeah. down it's a safety. So the other team gets two points and then you have to give the ball back to that team so it's not it's not so it's a not touchdown. six points but yeah. still it's stupid and ridiculous but i can't he, believe they even have to have a rule for that yeah well it's hard to know like in the scramble like when there's a fumble there's a mad scramble for yeah the that's ball. true you could turn and it's around like you get oh man you don't know where you are. you're just looking for the ball and you just grab it and you just run to get away from everybody and you could be on yeah. the wrong end <laughs> you just go yeah it's you it's, never did that did you no i uh never even made I'm a touchdown sure. No, I got a couple fumbles here and there, like jumping on a ball, but I would just like jump on it and like they would say scoop, scoop yeah. it and score, scoop it and run. But our our coaches would always say, "You guys aren't good enough to do that. Just jump on it. Just like <laughs> so, just lay on it." Oh my god, that's terrible yeah. coaching, isn't well, it? Yeah, and I agree. Like I was like, I knew I wouldn't be able to. Yeah, I had one chance at an interception. The ball was coming right to me, and I was so excited. I was like, there's yeah. nobody near me. Yeah. And it's going right to me. And I don't even know where who he's throwing it to. It's like, and there was nobody in front of me. Like, yeah. I had like 80 yards and I was going to score a touchdown. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I got, uh, this is great. I'm going to catch this and I'm just going to run because nobody's here. Yeah. I'm going to score a touchdown and interception. 80 yards. It's going to be unbelievable. And right before I got there, some lunkhead on my own team jumped in front of me to get it, caught it, and he fell straight down. 
and, oh. just, and just laid there and they tackled him. I'm like, I was like, I was going to run. Because he wanted well, the glory. Well, yeah. Well, he didn't see me. Oh, I he mean, didn't see you. You don't look at it. You don't look at who it's going. Oh, like, yeah, that's true. You're looking every, up. Everybody's trying to get the ball, but Keith Patton did that. Goddamn Keith Patton, if you're listening. Yeah. Fucker, you ruined my one chance of glory. Although I would have dropped it anyway, probably. All right, what's next? Saturday, October 31st, 1964. Ooh, it's spooky. What? It's Halloween. Oh. Yeah, it is Halloween, but this is not a Halloween story, but maybe I'll quickly make it into one by looking up how these people died. No, don't do that. Just do it. Uh, There's a new number one song on the Billboard charts. The Supremes? Yes. They became the first Motown act to have more than one American number one single. And by the end of the decade, would have more number one singles than any other Motown act or American pop music group. Yeah. With 12. This is a good song. They have 12, a record they continue to hold. Yeah. More 12 number one singles. After the insistence of Barry, Go- Barry Gordy hoping for a follow-up chart topper, uh, Holland Dozier Holland produced Baby Love to sound like Where Did Our Love Go? Mm-hmm. Elements were reincorporated reincorporated into the single, such as Diana Ross's cooing lead vocal, mm-hmm. which does sound really good. Yes, and and her ooing, uh, and ooing Florence Ballard and Mary Wilson's baby baby backup. Yeah, the Funk Brothers instrumental track and teenage Mike Valvano's foot stomping. You hear that a little mm-hmm. bit? Further, both Ballard and Wilson had brief solo ad libs towards the end of the song on the release version. After the release, Ross would be the only member to have any solos on the 1960s singles. So this kind of prompted Ross to be the the lead. Yeah, they had remembered earlier that I think last episode, the one before, where I talked about how it was supposed to be sung by somebody else, but they had already made the decision that yeah, Diana, Diana Ross was, was going to be the it. lead. So she is uh, amazing. She is amazing, and she yeah. knows she's amazing. Yeah, she does know that. And her writer says she can't be mm-hmm. anywhere that the background's not white. <laughs> yeah. And then, That's amazing. Yeah. And then Sunday, November 1st, mm-hmm. uh, 1964. This is not a number one song on the Billboard chart. Okay. But there's something about this song, so I'm just going to play this song. Okay. Uh, this is co-written by Phil Spector. Oldest man in the world. Yep. And it was first performed by the Righteous Brothers. Yes. This song has received more airplay on radio and on television than any other song in the past century. Really? Yeah. You're kidding. Yep. Huh. Like you, any other you've song? You've lost that love and feeling. Yep. Song has received more airplay on radio and television than any other song in the past century. Now that's according to... Where did I see this? Popculture.us? Yeah. Which got it probably from somewhere else. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of this song. I don't know why. I think it's been in some movies that I didn't care for. Steve Bishop and I sang this once at Cedar Point. I bet it was awful. It was bad because both of our we're both going through puberty. Even if you weren't, I can't even understand. I can never understand even if you're like humming a song to me and you me you. I can't ever. I never know what in the hell you're humming because you're so tone deaf. Wait a minute. I love you, and there's sounds, lots of good things about you, honey, but like tone deaf. This sounds like an attack. I'm walking in the truth. This sounds like you're attacking my character. I am walking in the truth. I am I will have you know, I have trained at Drulliard. At Drulliard? Drulliard. 
No, Drulliard Street. There's a street named Drulliard in Northwood where I learned to sing. Okay, what's next? Monday, November 2nd, 1964, jazz artist Dizzy Gillespie yeah. ran for president. Did he really? He promised that if he were elected, the White House would be renamed the Blues House. And huh. he would have a cabinet composed of Duke Ellington, the Secretary of State, Miles Davis, Director of the CIA, Max Roach, Secretary of Defense, Charles Mingus, Secretary of Peace, Ray Charles, Librarian of Congress, Louis Armstrong, Secretary of Agriculture, Mary Lou Williams, Ambassador to the Vatican, Thelonious Monk, Traveling Ambassador, and Malcolm X, Attorney General. That's awesome. He said his running mate would be Phyllis Diller. <laughs> <laughs> Campaign buttons had been manufactured years before Gillespie's booking agency, uh, years before by Gillespie's booking agency as a mm. joke. Mm -hmm. The proceeds went to Congress of Racial Equality, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Martin Luther King Jr. And in later years, they became a collector's item. Because has Martin Luther King Jr. been killed yet? Yes, Martin Luther King Jr. died. We have a holiday. No, no, in 64. He was shot and killed. Oh. I'm talking about where we are in the timeline. Well, wouldn't we have... Oh, yeah. I don't no, remember what year he died. Did we talk about it? We, we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it, I don't think. I'm sure he's alive then. So I wonder why he didn't name him as one of those people that he would appoint. Because they were all musical people. Not Malcolm X. Oh, Malcolm X, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, in 1971, he announced he would run again, mm -hmm. but withdrew before the election. In that same day, November 2nd, 1964, David Bowie's first TV appearance. Mm-hmm. Was that day? Oh, really? Um, yep, and I have a little clip of it here. Uh, he was 17 years old, mm -hmm. but it was not for his music. He was interviewed on the BBC's Tonight Show mm -hmm. as the founder of the Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. <laughs> what? Yes. Listen to this. This is so funny. He's 17 years David old. David Boy. 17. This is a 17-year-old David Boy. It's all got to stop. They've had enough. The worms are turning. The rebellion of the long hairs is getting underway. They're tired of persecution. They're tired of taunts. They're tired of losing their jobs. They're tired of being sent home from college. They're tired of being sent home from school. They're tired even of being refused the dole. So with the nucleus of uh, some of his friends, a 17-year-old, David Jones, has just founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. Well, here we are. Long-haired men, you've got to have your hair, what, nine inches long before you can join? Well, I think we've passed that over now. Have you? Yes. Now, exactly who's being cruel to you? Well, I think we're all fairly tolerant, but for the last two years we've had uh, comments like, darling, and uh, can I carry a handbag thrown at us? I think it's just had to stop now. But, but does this surprise you that you get this kind of comment? Because you're, after all, you haven't got really rather long hair, haven't you? We have, yes. Yeah, it's not. It's not really bad, that long. Really. No, I like it, and I think we all like long hair. It's like a mullet. And um, yeah. we don't see why other people should persecute us because of this. But then, you know, everybody had those short hair. Men mm -hmm. had short hair. Very short so, haircuts, yeah. Uh, but David Bowie had like a helmet of hair yeah. in that video. So, yeah, how about that? How about that little tidbit? So, was it a serious thing or was it a satire? No, I think it's real. They started a society of the prevention really? of cruelty to long haired men. I think so. Oh my God! That's yeah, weird. 
And then Monday, November 23rd, we're going to jump all the way to the 23rd. Yeah. The very first use of guitar feedback on a commercial pop record. Really? Is the intro of this song. Oh, yeah. Beatles. And so you hear that little bit of feedback. It's the very first time anybody did that. Oh. I Feel Fine by the Beatles. This is one that doesn't get as much credit. Yeah. It's a good song. Yeah, it's a good one. That's a good song. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there you go. And then Saturday, November 28th. Mm Mm-hmm. 1964, mm-hmm. a new number one song on the Billboard chart by the Shangri-Las. Do you know them? You remember them? Um, is she really going oh, yes. Well, there she is. Let's ask her. Betty, Leader is of the pack. Mm-hmm. It's a teenage tragedy Jane, song. Great. Yes. There were so many of these. This song was covered in 1985 by Twisted Sister. It was? Yep. Oh my they God. had a moderate hit with their version. This tune, the tune is credited to pop impresario George Shadow Morton. Together with Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich, Morton said he got a bottle of champagne, two cigars, and went into the shower, sat down, drank the champagne, smoked the cigars, and wrote the song on a shirt cardboard with his kids' crayons. What? Yeah. <laughs> Why is that a thing? Morton claimed he credited Barry and Greenwich as co-writers just for business reasons, but he wrote it himself. It was a thing where this was like a, they needed a second hit like that mm-hmm. day. They had one and they needed oh, a piece. Oh, so he had to do it. Yeah, so I cut out all the extraneous yes. stuff from Good. that story. So Because I need to get all mad. Well, it's boring. And then Saturday, December 5th. You're boring, 1964. All oh, your murders are boring, okay? It's just another murder, another murder. Well, Somebody's it's hard to find a murder stabbed. every two another months. Another murder, another bullet, more bleeding, more raping, 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 raping. We've heard everything. There's nothing. So, nothing new. So let's listen to the Lauren Green mm-hmm. taking over the Billboard charts. Okay. You know who Lord Green is? Lauren Green? Lauren Green, the Blue actor. Yeah. The outlaws, the gunslingers, the Billy the Kids, and worse. Say a fellow like the coward that shot Bill Hickok in the back. Song's called Ringo. There's always one like that in every time of history. Does he sing it? Most of them were varmints. But every once in a while, in one of them, there may have lived a man. The song's sung lyrics are limited to the title word alone. He lay face down on the desert sand, clutching a six-gun in his hand. Shot from behind, I thought he was dead. For under his heart was an ounce of lead. But a spark still burns, so the I used my Singing is performed by an unidentified male chorus. Ringo. 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 I nursed him till the danger passed. The rest of the vocal the performance consists of spoken fast. word. Then from First person account of a western lawman and his relationship with notorious gunfighter Ringo. No human being. The account in the song does not fit the known historical facts of the life of Western outlaw Johnny Ringo, but Green was under the impression that the song was indeed about Johnny Ringo, the outlaw. So he thought it was a true story? I think so. No, he... Yeah, he thought it was right about it. There is a guy named Johnny Ringo, and he thought it was right, but they say it's not. (laughs) And then, Sunday, December 6th, 1964, 
Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Oh, the claymation. This was the first year it was telecast. Oh, that, I and, love and it. It has been telecast every year since 1964. Yes. Making it the longest-running Christmas TV special in history. I'm so mad that the kids don't want to watch it every year. Santa never went back to the Island of Misfit Toys as he had promised, and many children wrote in and complained. So a new credit sequence in 1965 showed Santa returning to the island, which was the sequence that has been used ever since. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, I think we're just in a different world. Like I loved it as a kid, too. Yeah. Because it was just different than anything. Like, Mm -hmm. now the kids have... have everything they want. They have any single cartoon or anything they want at their fingertips at any moment. But there's such a... It's such a sweet story. Mm. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Eh, I don't know. I want to tape it and watch it. Mm, no. With the kids. Make them, no. I'm going to make them sit them, tape them down to the couch. You could do Clockwork Orange to their eyeballs. Yeah, I'm going to. Friday, December 11th, 1964. Mm-hmm. We have a pop star death that I was urging you to cover. Oh, that's but right. But you refused. You tell it to me, babe. I will tell you in your kind of dumb, crappy style of murders. Oh my God. So I'll add a bunch of rapes. No, I'm just kidding. Just like hit a bunch of rapes. Yeah, no. Pop star Sam Cooke, mm-hmm. uh, who, by the way, went to the same high school as Marla Gibbs. Oh, how do you know? How do you know these things? Uh, Are you starting to look up where people went to high school? Yes. Oh my God. I'm working on a secondary podcast by History of Jerks called Notable Alumni, oh, where no. we just look up high schools and who went there and who went to school together because. Marla Gibbs from 227 and the Jeffersons, mm-hmm. she went to the same high school as Sam Cooke, Nat King Cole, and Herbie Hancock. Oh How cool God. is that in Chicago? Holy moly. south side of Chicago. And, and you would never know that if I didn't... If you didn't look it up. look it up and yeah, then I guess tell so. people. Yeah. I guess Vic, you're good for something, baby. Vic Tabak, Mel from Mel's Diner, yes, went to the same is. high school as Kim Fields, Tootie, oh, from really? Facts of Life. So it's just like... You need to know these things. Yeah, I guess you do. Uh, Martin Scorsese went to the same school as George Carlin. How cool is that? That's crazy. You know, we know these things. So notable alumni. Look for that in fall of 2021. What year? 2071. <laughs> uh, anyway, pop star death. Sam Cooke uh, was murdered mm-hmm. at the age of 33 on December 11th, 1964. Yeah. At the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, California, the same day that Lurch learns to dance on the Addams Family on ABC. Lurch learns to dance while Uncle Fester learns to give analingus. That didn't happen. Now you're making... Um, Stop making everything up. No. um, Answering separate reports of a shooting and of a kidnapping at the motel, police found Cook's body clad only in a sports jacket and shoes, but no shirt pants or underwear he had sustained a gunshot wound to the chest which was later determined to have pierced his heart Uh, the motel manager bertha franklin said she had shot cook in self-defense after he broke into her office residence and attacked her who was she she was the hotel's manager so she's saying that he she says she shot him and cook and she shot cook in self-defense, after he broke into her office residence and attacked her. Huh. So she had an office in the hotel. Yeah. And he broke in. Her account was immediately disputed by Cook's acquaintances. But the official police record states 
that Franklin fatally shot Cook, who had checked in earlier that evening into the hotel. Franklin said that Cook had broken into the manager's office apartment in a rage, wearing nothing but a shoe and a sports coat. <laughs> Jeez. De- demanding, there was wiener and everything out. Yeah. Demanding, no, he was fully erect. No, I didn't say that. But You're- demanding to know the whereabouts of a woman who had accompanied him to the motel. Franklin said the woman was not in the office and that she told Cook this, but the enraged Cook did not believe her and violently grabbed her, demanding again to know the woman's whereabouts. According to Franklin, she grappled with Cook. The two of them fell to the floor, and she then got up and ran to retrieve a gun. She she said she then fired at Cook in self-defense because she feared for her life. Cook was struck once in the torso. According to Franklin, he exclaimed, Lady, you shot me! Before mounting a last charge at her. She said she beat him over the head with a broomstick before he finally fell, mortally wounded by the gunshot. Wait a minute. This is all very fishy sounding to me. It is. The motel's owner, Evelyn Carr, said that she had been on the telephone with Franklin at the time of the incident. Carr said she overheard Cook's intrusion and the ensuing conflict ensuing conflict and gunshot. She called the police to request that officers go to the motel, telling them she believed a shooting had occurred. Okay. A coroner's inquest was convened to investigate the incident. The woman who had accompanied Cook to the motel was identified as Elisa Boyer. Mm-hmm. She had also called the police that night shortly before Carr had. Boyer had called from a telephone booth near the motel, telling them she had just escaped being kidnapped. By Sam Cook? Boyer told the police that she had first met Cook earlier that night and had spent the evening in his company. She said that after they left a local nightclub together, she had repeatedly requested that he take her home. But he instead took her against her will to the Hacienda Motel. Boy. She said that once in one of the motel's rooms, Cook physically forced her onto the bed and that she was certain he was going to rape her. Mm Mm-hmm. According to Boyer, when Cook stepped into the bathroom for a moment, she quickly grabbed her clothes and ran from the room. She said that in her haste, she had also scooped up most of Cook's clothing by mistake. Oh. So that's why he only had a naked Yeah. She said she ran first to the manager's office and knocked on the door seeking help. However, she said the manager took too long in responding, so fearing Cook would soon be coming after her, she fled from the motel before the manager ever opened the door. She said she then put her clothing back on, hid Cook's clothing, went to a telephone booth and called the police. Boyer's story is the only account of what happened between her and Cook that night. However, her story has long been called into question. Did they find the cl- his clothes in the bushes or wherever she had? I don't know. Inconsistencies between her version of events and details reported by diners at Martoni's restaurant where Cook dined and drank earlier in the evening suggest that Boyer may have gone willingly to the motel with Cook, then slipped out of the room with his clothing in order to rob him rather than to escape an attempted rape. Cook was reportedly carrying much more money at Martoni's Mm -hmm. than the $108 cash found at his death scene, and Boyer was arrested for prostitution in January of 1965, though the charge was dismissed and she accrued no more notoriety. So was she working in cahoots with the manager? Maybe. However, questions about Boyer's role were beyond the scope of the inquest, the purpose of which was only to establish the circumstances of Franklin's role in the shooting. Boyer's leaving the motel room 
with almost all of Cook's clothing, and the fact that the test showed Cook was inebriated at the time, provided a plausible explanation to the inquest jurors for Cook's bizarre behavior and state of dress. In addition, because Carr's testimony corroborated Franklin's version of events, and because both Boyer and Franklin later passed polygraph tests, which are unflappable, yeah. those are without No, don't get me doubt, started on right, those. Uh, the coroner's jury ultimately Green accepted... Green River Killer passed all its polygraph tests, too. Well, he's innocent. They ultimately accepted Franklin's explanation and returned a verdict of justifiable homicide. Did they really? With that verdict, authorities officially closed the case on Cook's death. Some of Cook's family and supporters, however, have rejected Boyer's version of events, as well as those given by Franklin and Carr. They believe that there was a conspiracy to murder Cook, and that the murder took place in some manner entirely different than the three official accounts. The funeral was on December 18th, the same day that on, also on Adams' family, family, when an outraged art critic recommends that Mama get a teacher to help her paint better, Gomez gladly hires none other than Picasso than Picasso for Mama, not Pablo Picasso, Sam Picasso, a penniless non-talent who's more than willing to be flown to affluent America to teach in exchange for free room and board. All the while, Uncle Fister gives hand jobs to Lurch. All the while. Yep. I thought he was going to turn into a pedophile. No, that's gross. And at the funeral, singer Etta James viewed Cook's body before his funeral and questioned the accuracy of the official version of events. She wrote that the injuries she observed were well beyond the official account of Cook having fought Franklin alone. Yeah, but you can't. Etta James you can't, knows. You can't account for things like lividity and and what happens to the body after death. Etta James can. She's a death expert. Like the blood pools, all the blood drain, like pools down wherever you're laying, and so that part of your body gets blackened. Like Elvis. We and, learned that when Elvis fell over. And, it gets, the toilet. and then you get bloated and okay, stuff. Okay, do you have to make it gross? This was a nice murder I'm, story. You're making it gross. <laughs> I'm just saying. This was a nice, you can't, easygoing murder. That, at that point, you can't say. You can't, especially after they've been to the mortuary and they got like, them all dressed you're up. You're attacking and stuff. Etta James' character. For somebody I'm not who saying likes her yes or no. So I'm just saying you can't. You can't. You use that as a judgment. Well, Etta James wrote that Cook was so badly beaten that his hand, or that his head, was nearly separated from his shoulders. His hands were broken. How does she know that by looking at a coffin? And his nose was mangled. How does she? How can she know that from just looking at him in a coffin? I don't know. Maybe she was the. Maybe she was embalming. Maybe him. she was the coroner. She might have been. Some people have speculated that Cook's manager, Alan Klein, might have had a role in his death. Klein owned Tracy Limited, which ultimately owns all rights to Cook's recordings. No concrete evidence supporting a criminal conspiracy has been presented to date. You know what I say? Follow the money. Whoever had the most financial, well, financially that's to what gain I, from his death. That's what I just said. I know. That's what I'm saying. You think he did it? Alan Klein? He's we should look that, up his life. If he's the one that had the most to financially gain, then that's, I think, who did it. Well, Bertha Franklin said afterwards she received numerous death threats after shooting him. She left her position at the Hacienda Motel and did not publicly disclose where she moved. I can imagine. After being cleared by the coroner's jury, she sued Cook's estate, citing physical injuries and mental anguish suffered as a result of Cook's attack. Did she win? Her lawsuit sought $200,000. Uh, in punitive damages. Uh, but Barbara Womack countersued Franklin on behalf of the state, seeking seven grand in damages to cover Cook's funeral expenses. 
Elisa Boyer provided testimony in support of Franklin in the case. In 1967, a jury ruled in favor of Franklin on both counts, awarding her $30,000 in damages. That's the one who shot him. Yep. Yeah. Um, it turned into a big clusterfuck, didn't it? Yeah. And some of the uh, some of the places we got this are from rockhall.com, uh, Will Sam Cook's Widow Appeal, and the Afro-American. Uh, Sam Cook's swan song of protest on NPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, L.A. Weekly. Uh, Rage to survive that a James story, mm-hmm. and several other places that are all cited on Wikipedia. Okay. Yep. Yeah, how about that? Now that's, that's a good one. That's how you cover. You did a pretty good job, babe. Now, don't you think that would have been good? And yeah. You could have. You could have even done some more research, maybe yeah, even better. Been good. So this will be our test. Which one's better? This one or the Horrible rapey when you do later. Saturday, hey, December twelfth, nineteen sixty four. We have a contest, you know. Well, you're the one who loves rape. They rapes. can both be equally good. They can. Yeah, we don't have to judge whose is better. Well, the thing is, I, I told you you should do that one because it was so good, and you were like, I hate you, and I no, don't I love didn't you say anymore. Any of that. You said I hate you, and I don't love you anymore. All right, what's next? Uh, Bobby Vinton mm-hmm. with a song called "Mr. Lonely." Vinton began writing this song while serving in the Army. Oh, yeah, I know this one. The single of Vinton's recording was released just as the Vietnam War was escalating, and many soldiers were experiencing a similar situation. Oh, yeah. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely. (laughs) Guess I'll go play Mushy Cookie with the other guys in the infantry unit. Vinton's version was noted for his sobbing emotionally during the second verse. Yeah, he acts like he's crying in it. I have a friend who said that he's... <laughs> basic training. He says the, the guys are playing mushy cookie. No, really? Yeah, my friend claimed I'm not going to name him because... Yeah, don't name him. It's ridiculous. He says they put saltpeter in their food so nobody could get boners. No, that's got to be a lie. That's why I think it's a lie. But he said one day their kitchen was broken down. They went over to the the ladies' dorm. No? No. They went over to the ladies' dorm, and so they had to eat, and there was no saltpeter in it, so they all got boners. And a bunch of the guys were going to play mushy cookie in the bathroom. Like, hey, you want to play? You want to play? It was just a circle jerk. Hey, you guys want to to? We're all going to jerk off in there. Do you want to come in there with us or whatever? He's like, no, fuck no. That is such a lie. Complete lie. I know. I don't believe it at all. That is such a lie. And this guy has told this story more than once. That is such a dumb lie, too. And every time I'm like, no, that's not true. So I think he either <sighs> is just trying to screw with us and no, you know, it's he just a made up story he's heard. I don't think he does. Sometimes he does, but I hope he listens to this one. You do? Yeah. Uh, they, first of all, there's no way they put saltpeter in the food. That's yeah, ridiculous. Right. That's illegal. Man, I never know. Everybody ever got a boner. And then December 19, 1964. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is the worst, stupidest story. Uh, until Christmas, the Supremes take over the number one spot again. <laughs> Written and produced by Motown's main production team, Holland Dozier Holland. It was the number one song for two separate weeks, December 13th to December 18th, 64, January 10th, 65 to January 16th, Oh, it went back on the number one spot. 
with some air. Uh, but does that make sense? But I have it go- going from the 19th to the 25th. Oh, discrepancy in the timeline. Yes, there's a discre- a there's wrinkle a wrinkle in the, in the time. timeline. So somebody's wrong. Either this Wikipedia. Well, what really happened? I don't know. They, to the bottom of that. Popculture.us says December 19th to the 25th is Supreme Tour, so I'll have to do the research. Anyway, yep. it was a number one. Yep, it doesn't matter. The Supremes, whilst being the first to record this song, were not the first to issue it as a single. That distinction fell to Nella Dodds, and her version started selling, climbing to number 74 in the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart, but Motown Records quickly released this version as a single, which killed the sales of Nella Dodds' version. Oh, boom. Poor Nella Dodds, probably pissed. Yeah. I you know what this song is pissed. called? Um, Come See About Me? Yeah, Come See About Me. The Supremes are super hot. Yeah, you think? Very attractive ladies. Uh, and then on Friday, mm-hmm. uh, Friday was December 25th. Oh, yeah. This is Christmas Day. Christmas Day. And um, snobbish phonetics professor Henry Higgins agrees. Henry Higgins? Played by Sir Rex Harrison. Hello, ow, ow, ow. Agrees to a wager that he can make. Flower Girl, Eliza Doolittle, Audrey Hepburn, presentable in high society. Mm-hmm. Directed by George Cukor, mm-hmm. starring Audrey Hepburn, Rex Harrison, Stanley Holloway, mm-hmm. winner of the Best Picture. Yes. Jack L. Warner, Warner won Best Actor. Rex Harrison uh, dedicated his Oscar to two fair ladies, Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn. Best Director, Best Cin- Cinematography. Color, mm-hmm. uh, best art direction. They had best costume they design. Had two separate cinematography. Second. Yeah, color and color black and, and black white and probably. White. Huh. Uh, best costumes design. Color. Yeah, I guess you could. Best sound. You couldn't. Best music them scoring of music adaptation or treatment. Uh, nominee for best actor in supporting role by Stanley Holloway. Best actress in supporting role Gladys Cooper. Best writing screenplay uh, material from another medium. All right, but whatever. What is the movie? They got a lot of awards. Audrey Hepburn did not My get Fair an Oscar Lady. nomination for her performance. Yep. Uh, yeah, My Fair Lady. Audrey Hepburn, Hepburn did not get an Oscar nomination for oh, her performance. Oh, that stinks. Uh, because Marnie Nixon did the singing. Oh. So Audrey didn't sing. So yeah. the Academy figured it was half a performance. Oh, boom. When Audrey Hepburn first in, was first informed that her voice wasn't strong enough mm-hmm. and that she would have to be dubbed, she walked out. Did she? She returned the next day in a typically graceful Hepburn gesture, apologized to everybody for her wicked behavior. Yeah, she's a a neat lady. Yep. Also... She's a big animal rights activist. This was the Christmas that a new toy Mm -hmm. was introduced, and I will play the commercial for that toy because you will love it very much. Is it Slinky? Slunking it out in the middle of the ring. And he has a hard drive to the job. And Blue Bomb is black is knocked off. His block is knocked off? Sure, but you can press it right back on again. It's just part of the action with the world's only boxing robots, the Rock'em Sock'em Robots by Marks. Takes two managers to handle the fighters and lots of skill to win. 
With these control levers, you can keep your fighters in motion to duck punches. When you press this plunger, he throws a right uppercut. Press the other plunger and... Like that many kids are going to be sitting around screaming at that game. fun for everyone when the world's only boxing yeah. robots battle it out. The blue bomber's looking for an opening! You can only play Rock'em Sock'em Robots for, for about... Two seconds. Yeah, 30 seconds, maybe the most. Anyway, Rock'em Sock'em Robots has enjoyed far-ranging success in the United States, selling in the hundreds of thousands and becoming didn't. something of a minor pop culture phenomenon. The game was developed for the Mark's Toy Company uh, by the renowned toy design from Marvin Glass and Associates. Blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Also, the Easy Bake Oven came out this year. Uh, G.I. Joe's started. Rat Fink Collectible Hot Rod Figures. The Password Game. Mighty Tonka Dump Truck. Made popular due to the elephant stepping on it during a commercial. Uh, plastic Mr. Potato Head. Whammo mm. Professional Frisbees. Monster Magnet. Rube Goldberg's Animated Hobby Kit. And Hands Down with Slamomatic. So you did all the toys this time. Yeah, I just did it so you wouldn't have to waste your time with it since you have a big murder coming up. And then on Saturday, December 26, 1964, the 1964 American Football League Championship game was played. Yeah. Uh, it was the American Football League's fifth. It was the Buffalo Bills. Mm -hmm. It was their fifth championship game played at War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo, New York. The Buffalo Bills, 12-2 and two of the Eastern Division, hosted the defending AFL champion San Diego Chargers, who were 8-5-1 and one of the Western Division. The two had met twice in the regular season, and the Bills won both, most recently by three points in San Diego a month earlier on Thanksgiving Day. Okay, done with that. Hall of Fame wide receiver Lance Allworth of the Chargers was injured in the final regular season game a left knee hyperextension, and did not play. The Chargers had lost three of their last four games to end the regular season, and the Bills were slight favorites to win the title at home. With Allworth out, they became strong But favorites. they didn't win, so the end. Right? Yeah. Uh, oh, you know what? I didn't put the score. I think they did win. I thought they lost all the time, the Buffalo Bills. That wasn't until the 80s. Oh, okay. And then on Saturday, December 26, 1964, that Beatles song, I Feel Fine, that we played yeah. earlier, becomes number one. Okay. Okay. And then one more before your stupid crap, whatever it is. Sunday, December 27, 1964, mm -hmm. the Cleveland Browns fans still cherish the 1964 NFL championship. This is still before the NFL yeah. and AFL became one. So okay. there's two separate football championships. The Cleveland Browns. Mm hmm defeated the Baltimore Colts 27 to nothing. Okay. Uh, in that 1964 NFL championship game, uh, the Browns fans still cherish this more than two generations later. Uh, Jim Brown ran for 114 yards on 27 carries in the Browns' 27 nothing victory because the Browns have never won since. Since There's 1964. No since then, yep. Yeah. Stupid, crappy Browns forever. That's right. Browns will never do anything good and that brings us Let to december 28th 1964 okay yes i am going to talk to you about the murder of beverly jarris beverly jarris how do you spell jarris j-a-r-o-s-z oh well it's already better than sam cook's murder this happened on december 28th 1964 yes, it did. the same day that american sitcom wendy and me aired on abc and what during the, the 19, world? During the 1964-65 season, 
Uh, this was primarily sponsored by Consolidated Cigars El Producto, principally starring George Burns and Connie Stevens. Mm -hmm. The series was Burns' first major work following the death of his wife and professional partner Gracie Allen, who Aww. had died of a heart attack yep. about a month prior to its debut. Yep. Okay. That's sad. It is. So, Beverly Jarris was a sweet... 16-year-old high school junior. Oh, what a sweet little baby. And this is in Garfield Heights, Ohio. Oh, Garfield Heights, Ohio. <laughs> that's the that's the home of Dave Reinhardt. Okay. Maybe. So um, she lived there with her parents, Thaddeus and Eleanor. Ah, uh -huh, Thaddeus and Eleanor. And her 12-year-old sister, Carol. Oh, Carol's only 12. She was a quiet girl. Friends said she was moody, a little bit secretive. How old is she, 16? 16. So she's, she's a typical 16-year-old. Um, she was beautiful, and she oh. had male admirers and a clean-cut boyfriend. A lot of times, when a girl's very attractive, they have male admirers. But she'd never done more than kiss her boyfriend at this point, and she had no known enemies. How do you know that's all she's done? That's so, so she says. Well, she, she loved classical and jazz music, okay. visits to the Cleveland Museum of Art, literature, oh. and writing poetry. Okay, so we're close to Cleveland. Where the Browns yes. uh, won the championship. They just won the championship, so people are excited. Her parents had given her for Christmas that year a complete Shakespeare volume and a leather gold-embossed blank book in uh, which to transcribe her poetry. And a Cleveland Browns helmet? No, she did not get that. No. So poetry, her, she, wanted, she was planning poetry, to attend college and pursue a career teaching language. All right, that's. I guess that's fine. There's so wrong the dad that. owned his own business, and the girl's mother also worked outside the home. Oh. And their house was this small, just one and a half stories. Okay, not very big. And Beverly and Carol shared the only upstairs room. And it had those slanting walls. It was like arbored, yep. kind of like a finished attic would look. I know somebody who had a room like, house like that or a room like that once. And he, Thad, Thaddeus was handy, and he had made built matching bookcases and closets. Yo, Thaddeus, that's some nice stuff. handiwork. See, Thaddeus, good work, man. So this was an average Christmas break day. Okay. Oh, so for us... Just laying around our own filth and nobody brushing their teeth. That's right. Just like just like at our house. <laughs> yeah. So real early, Mr. and Mrs. Jarris both left for their jobs early this day. Good riddance. Then around 10.30 a.m., yeah. Beverly and Carol arrive after a two-mile walk to Grandma's house. Her name oh. was Mrs. Vanek. Oh, so they went to Mrs. Vanek's. So they, they walked to Grandma's house yeah. through the snow. She's wearing, Beverly was wearing slacks, it's a Cleveland. white blouse, and a black cardigan. Wait, she was wearing slacks? Does she ever... Leave her slacks on the Davenport? Yes, yeah, I know. That's kind of an old-timey. Well, back then, they did have slacks on, didn't they? I'm going to leave my slacks on the Davenport, and then later, I'm going to leave them on the commode, and I'm going to put my billfold there, too, on All the right. commode. And so she does grandma's hair. Oh, yeah. Get grandma getting good. And great-grandma great great was there, too. Oh, she's getting it, too. And everyone was joking and having a good time and everything. So then at 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock in the morning on a weekday. From grandma's, Beverly calls... And makes plans to meet up later with two friends. Oh, okay. We're going to get together and party. And then at... And bullshit and party and bullshit. All right. Shh. At 12 o'clock, Carol decides she's going to stay at Grandma's when Beverly and Beverly decides she's going to go home. Now, uh, what's the young one staying at Grandma's? Yeah. 
Beverly's going home so yes. she can go party with her friends and get into trouble. Well, her friend Barbara was going to come at one thirty to walk, and they were going to walk together to another friend Margie's home, that which I love sense. all these names because they're so 60s. Yeah. Margie this, and Barbara and uh, Beverly. Yeah, Barb. Yep. Sounds like all the ladies my mom went to school with. So they're going to go party and do coke at one of their no, houses. No, they're probably. not. Um, Just drink sodas and talk about boys. So Mrs. Vanek's neighbor sees Beverly and okay. tells her, that um, and tells her 18 year old son to drive her home because it was cold outside. Oh, it's cold out there, Charlie. Why don't you go drive them? And he, so he sees nothing unusual when he drops her off. He leaves immediately and he returns home. He murdered her. He's cle- he did he's it. Later cleared. No, nope, nope. He did it. I know for sure. I can tell. At 12:10 or around 12:10 in the afternoon. In the afternoon, Beverly turns on the radio, drapes her coat on the banister, and sets her purse and a book on the dinette table. Right at home, she mm-hmm. makes it. Okay. She's at home. Oh, she's yeah. He dropped her off. Okay. She turns on the radio, and so the the radio is heard faintly in the background when she's on the phone shortly after that. Okay, because TV so hasn't been invented. She answers a phone call for her dad. At around oh, her dad calls around in between 12:10 12, 12:40. 12, in between there. Yeah. No, it's a it's a phone call for her dad. Oh, for her dad. She answers it for him, takes a note. She writes down, Steven Stankowitz called. We'll call back later. Oh, Steven Stankowitz definitely did it. That so, fucker killed her. But he, he didn't call back later because no one in the house knew anyone by that name. Oh, he was busy murdering. And so nobody, nobody knows what that was about. Then Except it, that he murdered her. Around 12.40, Beverly answers a phone call from a local jeweler who says her mom's necklace repair is done. That jeweler did it. <laughs> I can tell. Okay, so then at 1 o'clock, Beverly calls her mom at work to relate the message, and then they chat for a few minutes. She excuses herself since her friend is expected shortly, and she wants to change clothes. Yeah, she wants to look good for them fellas. So around 1.10, Mrs. Vanek, Grandma... Grandma calls and who's talks. got her hair all done looking fine. Yep, and she she chats a few minutes. And she said Beverly sounded rushed, and she said, and then she, Beverly says, "I can't talk to you now, Grandma. Barbara's here," and hangs up. Okay. Between one ten and one fifteen, it is presumed that Beverly went upstairs to change clothes, as there was no sign of struggle downstairs, and the murder happened in the bedroom. But Barbara should have been there, or maybe she heard somebody and thought it was Barbara. right, or maybe Barbara did it. So between one twenty and one twenty five, about. Yeah. Barbara's mom drops her off at the house. Oh, so it wasn't Barbara. They see no cars in the driveway or, or parked on the street close to the house. Oh, no. Barbara got to find a body, y'all. So she first goes to the side door. Yeah. The inner door is ajar, and the storm door is locked. Oh, boy. The inner door is ajar, and the storm door is locked. Locked, yes. Oh, that's weird. That doesn't happen. A radio is playing very loudly. Uh-oh. And Barbara goes to the front porch and rings the bell, and the radio is near that door, and she hears it well enough to understand, like, she recognized the song and everything. That's how, oh. how what loud song it was. was it? I don't know. Barbara it was probably, is, I feel fine. So Barbara the starts Beatles. to get a bit annoyed, and she, but also kind of worried. And um, I'm picturing Barbara a, from the Upside Down World. I know, from, me too. Uh, what's that she, show? Yeah. She grabs a magazine from the mailbox and looks through it, and then Wait, she hears a magazine this, or a magazine? A magazine. Okay. Yeah. She hears one really loud thump, like someone knocking over a dresser, she says. Like an icky thump? I don't know Okay, what that is. Um, after about 15 minutes, she, oh, she goes home. Yeah? But she telephones Beverly several times after this with no answer. Yeah, she should have broken in, man. She should have sensed the well, trouble. Well, I don't know about that. 
She could have helped. She checks with Margie, and there's no Beverly there there either. Oh, she didn't go to Margie's. I heard a thump and loud music. Something going crazy. So at 4.30, Thaddeus left work, and he comes home, and he's alarmed by a call from Grandma. Beverly's friends. Wait, wait. Remind me who Thaddeus was again? That's the the dad. dad. Okay, yeah. He gets leaves work, 4.30, comes home. Yep, and because, he's because he's what? alarmed by a call from because he's coming home because he was alarmed by a call from grandma. Why? What is she? Because want? Beverly's friends had called at four o'clock looking for her since she didn't answer the phone or show up. Oh no! And the side door was still ajar, but the storm door was now unlocked. Uh oh! The back door and its storm door were the same, and the family never used that door. Steve Stankowitz did it. The front door was locked. No doors were forced. Nothing was missing from the house. The jeweler did it. The radio still blasted. Classical music. Oh, classical music. Yep. Panicked, Thaddeus ran upstairs where he found Beverly obviously dead. Oh, no. Touching nothing except putting his hand on her lower back briefly, he went downstairs and called the police. So the scene was so horrifying to them. Yeah. That the local police just, it took them just five minutes after their arrival to call the Cleveland PD for help. Oh, man. Was she missing? uh... Wait, who was this? Who who, did they call? The Cleveland police. That's close by. Wait, who? Who called the Cleveland police? The local police. Oh, the lo- what's the, the local? The, what is it? Grover, Grover, Heinz Grover. Or whatever Bentner. it was. Uh, wait, was her arm missing and her body all scorched? Well, let me tell mattress? you. Her, her primary cause of death was strangulation by rope. Oh, gosh, man. She was found that? face down on the floor, parallel to the twin beds, and her left leg was hooked up against her bed. Oh. And she laid partially on top of a blood-soaked blanket that was usually kept at the foot of the bed. That what the she that's she usually keeps her blood soaked blanket at the foot of her bed. Yeah, and it was under her. Now, so wait, so why do they keep a blood soaked blanket? Well, at the no, foot it, of the bed? it's not usually it's blood soaked. <laughs> wait, so uh, anyway, you hold on. Uh, yeah. let's put the blood soaked blanket on you tonight. No, I want the blood soaked blanket. Um, while she was not raped, her sweater was yanked and torn to her <sighs> hips, and she was nude Finally. from the waist down. Oh, she was wearing a blouse and a bra, but they were shoved up to her neck. Buttons from the blouse were on the floor. So her boobs were out. Yes. Or her, everything was her out. Bush was out. Everything was. Why do you have to talk about it like that? Or her. But I'm just trying to. Th- but she wasn't raped. She hadn't been raped, though. So <sighs> I'm thinking that that the friend knocking at the door interrupted something. Oh. Is what I'm thinking. But anyway. But she would have seen him leaving then. Or? Not if he stayed in there until she was gone. So anyway, uh, um, because she heard that noise, something was going on. That was when it was happening. I guarantee it. Why uh, would that loud music be playing, and why would she hear that huge loud thump? thump? Yeah. So three lengths of rope were found. Two had tied loops at either end. It was found to have been manufactured in Hickory, North Carolina. Hickory! It was a sash That's cord that had been used as a clothesline. It was weathered. Each segment was 20 inches long. You know what? There's a chance John Reap was being conceived at that same time as that rope Maybe. was manufactured. Because this is 1964. Some accounts show a, a, show a piece with one loop only, and it's possible the cord was cut during the stabbing frenzy. Parts of the rope were found under her body and parts draped over her shoulder. Her right hand held some of the rope as well. <sighs> Nicks in the rope indicated it was accidentally cut by the killer as he strangled and stabbed her simultaneously from behind. Why would he do that? Rope marks were on the front of her neck. She so was stabbed violent. about 40 times. Oh, somebody she knows. Mostly in the neck, chest, and shoulders with, with a very sharp knife. 
Only three wounds in the middle of her back corresponded with holes in her blouse. Got to be somebody she knows, man. Nine of the stab wounds were in her back in groups of three. She had defensive wounds on her fingers. No knife was recovered. It was speculated it may have been Beverly's sharp letter opener that she owned. Her face was slashed on the left side from e- from ear to point of chin and on the right from the ear to the base of the throat. I think it was the guy that drove her home. The coroner said that the killer severed all the vessels. There was nothing under her unbroken fingernails, and her stomach contained only lunch. A throw rug normally between the beds on the hardwood floor was under Carol's bed. Another had drops of blood and was wadded up further away. Her bed sheets and footboard were bloody. A 9 by 5 inch hole was punched through the sloping blood streaked wall over her bed. So like one of the arbor things yeah. that comes down, there's this big hole in the wall. That's probably fighting and trying uh, to get Yeah. The tiny nightstand between the beds was untouched. A dozen fingerprints and some bloody palm prints were found, and all but three eliminated as hers or her family's. So the police arrive, and they see all this. Yeah, I think the guy who dropped her off did it. And And the jeweler. The knowledge of what they found followed Detective Paul Miles on his first visit to the house almost a half century later. He said, I got to the side of the house, and whoa, you just felt evil. You knew something happened there. I Wait, mean, you're I, saying it took him a half century to get there when they called the police? No, this is a half century later. And he's talking about he's it? He's still talking about it. Ah. I've been to a thousand crime scenes. Never bothered me, but this you just knew was evil. Garfield Heights Police Captain William Horrigan. Garfield Heights, that's, that's what it was. That's where it was. Who became the lead investigator on the case and would pursue tips until he died. Called it the worst killing I've ever seen. Um, a police dog. They brought in a police dog. He followed a scent from the room out to the back door and across the yard to the next street north. Huh. Footprints were found in a patch of sand by the curb, but were not helpful. It was winter, but there was no snow on the ground. Some of what looked yeah. like Beverly's hair was found in a bush in the backyard. Huh. A neighbor claimed he saw a 20-something man walking unhurriedly down the Jarrus driveway at around 145 that day. Or maybe an 18-year-old man who drove her home. The man got into a car, parked between two other cars, and drove away. Barbara noticed no cars, and the neighbor at least three so it's uncertain which eyewitness was correct. Was somebody wrong? Yep. Um, the police interviewed over 300 people. Many 300. Beverly's male friends came in voluntarily and were fingerprinted and polygraphed. Everybody passed. Uh. There was a report of a menacing man following Beverly one day at a, the art museum she frequented, but that was the previous summer. A delivery man saw a young man walking down the street around the murder time, but he and his parents came forward and he was cleared. Many leads like this led nowhere. It was Charlie. Beverly's mother, Eleanor, and sister, Carol, believed Beverly was stalked. Yeah. Both remembered hang-up calls, sometimes 10 or 12 a day. Well, that's Steve Stankowitz. On the family's party line phone before the murder. So Haunted they were getting 10 or 12 hang-up calls a day. Uh. The the last of these calls as in early December as as early as December 1964. They remembered the anonymous gift of a bracelet and a ring that was left on the back porch with a note that said to Bev. Uh oh. And she never knew who gave that to her. So why would he murder her? Carol said her father came home one night, saw someone on the lawn staring up at the girl's bedroom, and chased him down the block but didn't catch him. How creepy is it that? Oh well, this should have been the first thing they said instead of all yeah. the other stuff. Bev became jumpy, always careful to lock the doors and draw the blinds. She checked in by phone whenever whenever she went somewhere. And oh, that's she why she's calling everybody. Bought a brass letter opener she kept handy for protection. Yeah, those things are some so damage. She take an eye out with that shit. She knew that she was in danger for some reason. Yeah. Um, 
Well, because of that weird stalker. If somebody's looking in your house and you're, yeah. yeah. There was not one person I could suggest who might have done it to her, Eleanor said. I couldn't help the detectives in any way. I always thought it was a stalker. But the detec- detectives decided Beverly must have known the killer. She would not have left the door unlocked or admitted anyone she didn't know. There was no sign of forced entry or a scuffle at all on the first floor. But I also remember that guy drove her home. I know. You think it's him. The Cleveland Press offered $5,000 reward, and it was brought, raised up to $10,000. Um, Heavy, the heaviest suspicion fell on four young men. The boyfriend, as he came to be called, who was a conservative college student. Oh, he did it. The ex-boyfriend, who would have been considered a greaser in the teen circles oh, of the time. Oh, never mind. He did it. A college student neighbor who had an eye for Beverly. Oh, that guy did it for sure. That's and, probably the stalker. And a young door-to-door salesman with a record of assaulting women. Oh, well, maybe that guy did it. One alternately confessed and denied and denied involvement. Police discounted the confession. All were fingerprinted and given lie detector tests so and all why, had alibis. Why would you discount a confession if somebody confessed? I, I don't know. It I was, know it, was somebody, it was somebody like who false confession, I guess. They confessed to it and then they probably somebody doing it for attention or, or something. they were forcing them. Yeah. Like could maybe be. they forced them like Brendan Dassey and that. Yeah, like show. that. Horrigan, the lead investigator, focused on one. In 1989, 25 years later, he said, I had who I was convinced was the killer the second day after the murder, but I couldn't get enough evidence to prosecute him. And he yeah. can't name him because he wasn't ever... Ah, uh, that guy. I bet it was him. Um, so, 10 years ago, they decided to take another look at the case. 10 years ago from right now? Yeah. You mean it... Tw- Re- 2009? Yes. Uh, re-interviewing people and using tools not available in 1964, especially DNA testing. And the band tools now around, so that might help. It might help. The technology had advanced, has advanced so much since then, they continue to work. Tube technology. Um, police in the original investigation focused on a handful of individuals, and most of the names are the same names today, but they're all now in their 60s or 70s. Yeah. And in 2004, the case was reopened, DNA samples taken from several people. Right. In 2014, the DNA was sent to a lab. God, yes. it takes a long time to get DNA. I know. Get to it. In 2016, Carol self-published a book of Beverly's poetry as a surprise for her 91-year-old mother. Oh, that's that nice. nice? Um, so new DNA technology they're still hoping will solve half the half-century-old cold case. Oh, but they don't have the results? But they don't have any conclusive results. Ah, shit. What's um, the name of this? Beverly or? Jarris. The murder of Beverly Jarris. Um, Jarris? Bel- sure police Jarose. believe she was attacked from behind while upstairs to change clothes. So she felt comfortable leaving that person or Barbara arriving alone. Yeah. And there was an author who wrote a book about it. And another weird thing that happened seven years after the murder, yeah. while they, the parents were at a neighbor's funeral, the Jarrus home was broken into. Really? But all that was taken was a gold watch, but the backing had been torn from two prints hanging on the wall, reproductions of famous 18th century English portraits. They were favorites of Beverly and was framed for her by her father. They tore the back off of them. It was as if someone was looking for something. Huh. Isn't weird. that weird? Yeah. So that's the murder of Beverly Jarris. I know it wasn't as fabulous Jarose. as your stupid Sam Cooke. S- Sam Cooke is not stupid. He went to the same school as Marley Gibbs and Herbie Hancock. 
Well, Beverly Jarris might have gone to high school with somebody like that. Well, you didn't do the research, so you can't be on an episode of Notable Alumni. I will gladly bow out of that. That's going to be the greatest podcast ever. We can, talk about, we can talk about who the mascot is of each school, you know, the, their team That's colors. So boring. Notable Alumni. All right, and that is that is finally all of 1964 people we're sorry everybody sorry it took us 71 episodes to get through 1964 i know my son the other day was like you're still on 1964 yeah i'm glad it takes a long time because man yeah now i gotta start researching 1965 and you know how long it takes to put all this stuff together i know when you have a full-time job it takes a long time it's true and we both keep trying to get fired we just nobody will fire us like right we do everything. Like we put our yep. junk on stuff. I'm gonna start smoke, smoking pot at work. I think. Yeah. Get, we, get fired. Yeah, we all do that. Everybody does that. Yep. Uh, I do a lot of. Um, uh, I eat a lot of uh, cakes shirtless. Yeah, you do that. Uh, while people are trying to talk to me about stuff, I just take my shirt off and eating cake. That's true. Doesn't work. They won't fire you for that. I guess. Nope. All right. Anyway, thanks for listening. Tom Heads, you are the best. Yes, thank you for everything. We love our Tom Heads. We love um, you. Give us a review. Yeah, uh, shout out to all your listeners on the Instagram and the Twitters. Hit us up with Yep, it's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. When you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes. And the wind so tired of hearing a fire. One more time, I said we're so tired of hearing about the sixties. Well, make me shut my mouth. Samantha, that's a hickey. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Oh, Sure.